Hey friends, welcome to the Grace Enough podcast. I am your host, Amber Cullum. Each episode, I sit down with a guest to discuss their life journey and how the grace of God has impacted them along the way. After listening to today's episode, I hope you are encouraged that God can use you right now in the midst of your day-to-day life. Yes, it requires daily surrender and trust, but we must remember His grace is enough. Suffering. The state of undergoing pain, distress, or hardship. Suffering is not something we as humans long for, but it is inevitable. We live in a world broken by sin. Therefore, suffering affects everyone. Today's guest, Vanitha Reisner, has experienced suffering on a scale the majority of us hope to avoid. But you will hear Vanitha talk about her process of learning that her life is not God's plan B, but instead it is God's best for her, despite all that she has faced. We chat about her childhood with polio the loss of her son, Paul, the way God held her through the grief, God's sovereignty, caring for two adolescent daughters alone, and lament. Listen to what Vanitha says about seeing God's glory. Was crumbling. I remember just yelling at God, crying to God, begging God, all of those things. And then I remember one night, sort of a similar time, probably not as dramatic as after Paul died, but just saying, God, help me. What what are you doing? Like, I can't do this. And I remember reading John 11, the raising of Lazarus, and reading the words, if you believe, you will see the glory of God. And I remember crying out to God, I believe, help my unbelief. I want to see your glory. And it was sort of another time when God just said, I'm going to hold you. You cannot see what I'm doing right now. You just can't see it but I am doing something that you need to trust. After today's episode, I hope you are able to better face suffering with the hope that Jesus is working and God has purpose even when we cannot see it. Good morning, Vanitha. Thank you so much for being here today for the Grace Enough podcast. Oh, I'm so excited to be here with you. I know, we didn't know we were neighbors, but we basically are. I know. So we'll have to have coffee sometime. Oh, that sounds awesome. That's actually, I have my coffee now. It's nice and rainy and cold here. And so we'll go ahead as we get going and introduce yourself to our listeners, your family, and tell everybody a little bit about what you do. Okay. Well, I write and I speak about how to find God in suffering. And um, my family, I have two daughters. My older daughter went to Chapel Hill and lives in the area. And my younger daughter is a senior at Wheaton and is playing basketball today for them. And my husband is Joel. Uh, Joel and I have been married five years, wonderful years. And um, I have two stepdaughters, Ashley and Emily, and they live in D.C. and in Knoxville. And I have not always been a writer, though, so I'm very hesitant to say I'm a writer because that sounds like I say profound things. But I would say I'm more of a sufferer, and God has called me to write about what he's done in my life. Hmm. Wow. I'm a sufferer. That's maybe a title all of us don't want to claim, right? Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I think that's probably one of the hardest things to even say is I'm a sufferer, but in some ways we're all sufferers. We don't, we suffer in so many different ways through relationships, through family things, through broken dreams. But it was interesting because I don't think until about six years ago, I would have even identified myself as a sufferer until I was at a conference and somebody asked me, what was the greatest gift that somebody has ever, anyone has ever given you? And it was a conference on giving 
And somehow the word suffering came out of my mouth and I had no idea why. And everyone thought I was so profound. They used me in the little clip at the opening. And I was thinking to myself, why did I even say that? Like, (laughs) do I consider myself a sufferer? Why would I say suffering is a gift? And so it was one of those words that I came back and pondered and pondered. And it was really since that time, I would identify myself as a sufferer because God has given me the gift of suffering. Mm. Well, and that's something that we'll dig into. And you write, well, the title of your blog or your website is Dance in the Rain. And people, our listeners don't even realize just how true that is of your life. And so as we dig in, go ahead and share your story with our listeners, beginning back when you were first diagnosed with polio. Well, I was born in India and my parents were Christians. And I was born in 1964. Polio was eradicated pretty much in uh, 52 and 54 with the vaccine. So my parents took me to the beach. Polio is transmitted through water primarily. Got home and I had a high fever. But since nobody they knew had polio, they didn't think it could be that. And a doctor thought I had typhoid because I had a high fever. So they gave me cortisone, which lowers your body's immune system. So when 24 hours, I was completely paralyzed. And then the doctor said, oh my gosh, uh, I think she has polio. She didn't have typhoid. But at that point, there was nothing the doctors could do. And so they encouraged my parents to leave India. And it's funny because I've since realized Part of the reason was because they couldn't get good medical care in India. But part of the reason is that people with a disability in other countries are viewed as cursed. And so they are shoved into back rooms. They Mm -hmm. don't have a life, really. And it almost brings shame to the family, even to Christians, because my parents were Christian. And that was not the reason they moved. But I think these people realized that with a disability, life is really hard in another country. So my parents moved to England. My dad had been a professor in India, but he took a job just installing telephones in London just so he could get out of the country. Wow. So he left his career and his life and moved to England. And I had my first surgery when I was two. And then we moved from England to Canada. And by the time I was 13, I had had 21 operations. So lived in the hospital in Canada, actually. I was in Canada till I was about 10 and lived there for several years in a Shriners hospital because that was a hospital for people really without a lot of money. And Mm -hmm. so they wouldn't, you had to live there and they wouldn't let parents visit because a lot of kids didn't have parents come at all. So parents, my parents, sorry, they could visit, but they could only come on weekends. So it was Saturday and Sunday and the rest of the week I was by myself because my parents couldn't come. Wow. I mean, that's like a whole other part of your story that we could talk about really in the fact that just what your parents gave up. Yeah. Yeah. They really, they gave up their life. Yeah. Not knowing what was going to happen with them because they, my dad had said he had his career path. He was about to get his PhD. He had always just wanted to teach and he completely gave that up. Well, and so were you an only child at that point? No, I had an older sister. I have an older sister who's 14 months older than me. So it was just the two of us. So our little family of four moved to England and then moved to Canada. But it was hard for my sister because my parents 
really sacrificed a lot for me. Yeah. They were committed to seeing me every single weekend, never missed a weekend in years. So my sister never got a vacation. Like every weekend she sat in a waiting room because she wasn't even allowed to come upstairs. Really? So she sat in a waiting room when she was seven years old, six years old for the entire day by herself. Yeah. And so you lived in this hospital. How long did you say that it was? The longest I had at one time was nine months. Wow. 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 The reality is, is that as much suffering as that is, there's still more. Yeah. There's still more that comes down the pike for you. And so with all of this testing, eventually you came to know Jesus. You had several years that were, I mean, what we would say just a typical life. Mm -hmm. You got married. And then what happens as you start having children? Well, first of all, I sort of had this theology that everybody has one big suffering. So I thought my big suffering was having polio. I was also bullied as a child, but I thought, okay, all of that is behind me and my life is going to be great. Yeah, I'm all done. I've, I've yeah, done my yeah. big and check mark. And I actually mark. remember looking at people thinking, you have no idea what your suffering is going to be. Mine is over. <sighs> but then after I got married, um, got pregnant and had a miscarriage right away, and I thought, oh my gosh, this isn't part of this wonderful life I'm supposed to have. And I ended up actually having four miscarriages, Oh wow! but they were spread out. So I had a miscarriage. Then I had our daughter, Katie. Then I had two miscarriages. And then I was actually really scared to get pregnant again. Cause I kept thinking I'm going to have another miscarriage, but I got pregnant and at 20 weeks was doing well and went into the doctor for a routine ultrasound mm -hmm. and found out that we were having a little boy but at the same time found out that he had a heart problem, a hypoplastic left heart, which is a very dangerous situation. If you don't have surgery at birth, your child will die within a few weeks. Right. So we did all kinds of research and ended up deciding to have surgery in Michigan when he was born. He did amazingly. And so everything was going well. And I thought we were going back to this really good life that I felt I had been promised we were back in Raleigh and our regular cardiologist was sick one day. We went in, saw a substitute and the substitute looked at Paul and said, that was our son. He looks amazing. He's doing so well. I don't think he needs his medication anymore. And he was taking medication around the clock. And I was so happy because we, our life was on a timer. Right. And you had a, probably a toddler running around at the same time, correct? Yes, yes. So Katie was two and a half. So we were so happy that this was going to be our, our new normal. So we came back, called my friend who, had, who was a pediatric cardiologist and said, guess what? Paul doesn't need any more medication. And our friend said, that's kind of crazy because mm -hmm. I deal with babies like this and they need their medication. But this ended up being, I talked to John, my friend, on a Friday evening, and everything was closed. And John said, just call back on Monday. So I thought, okay, I'll call back on Monday. But Sunday night, in the middle of the night, Paul woke up to nurse, but then he screamed and went limp in my husband's arms. And so we called 911. And I remember calling John in the middle of the night saying, oh my gosh, you were right. So what do I need to do? And I remember John said, I'm so sorry. And I kept saying, tell me what to do. I'm going to go to the ER. I need to know what am I supposed to do? And John didn't tell me anything. And so I remember hanging up the phone oh and gosh. begging God, 
just begging him, I will do anything if you would save my son. Mm-hmm. And so a friend came because my uh, David taken Paul to the, to, in the ambulance and a friend came to stay with Katie and I went to the ER to see Paul. And when I got there, I expected Paul to be hooked up to machines, but right. the woman at the front desk basically told me that Paul had died and my world collapsed. I could not believe that God would take my son after I had begged God not to. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was a really difficult time in my faith. But the interesting thing is that day, and I would say for a week after through the funeral, God just carried me. And I had this sense that God was there, even though I felt so devastated, there was this supernatural sense that God was with me, that we got up and spoke at the funeral and said, God never makes a mistake. But it was after that, that all of those words sort of came tumbling back to me. And I started thinking, God does make a mistake. Why did this happen? I felt lonely and didn't even know where God was in my pain. Well, and that's kind of a question that I was going to ask you, like, how did your relationship with God really change after you had to bury your baby boy? And then what was that process like the months and the years after as almost your feelings about God and that theology of I only experience one big suffering, you know, and I've done another interview with a lady, Treva Kuiper, who lost her husband unexpectedly in a motor or in a motor vehicle accident. And she said that same thing. Mm. I had thought because I had experienced such suffering as a child that I was done with that. Yeah. And that suffering, my big suffering was over. So What did it look like in the months and years after that, as you began to trust Jesus and learn something different about him? Well, it was interesting because pulled away from God and just felt so empty. I didn't know whether God was listening to my cries, but then I remember being in the car and just finally just saying, okay, God, I can't pull away from you. Show me you're listening drawn near to me and just basically put myself out there in a way that I had been afraid to, because I felt in some ways like, how can I trust you, God, because I begged you to do something and you didn't do it. Mm -hmm. And so I felt that I really opened my heart up to God when I asked that question, like, I want to trust you. I want to see you. And the next few moments, honestly, Amber, were the most amazing moments of my life. Even today, the sense of God filled my car. Like I started laughing, like there was this joy and it wasn't in anything, but in God. I just thought, okay, if this is what heaven is, where it really doesn't matter what else has happened, but there is this joy in being with Jesus. I thought I, I can do anything. And I, words really can't describe it, but it changed me. It was the marker in my life that no matter what God said, I will give you this joy that you can't explain, but it is rooted in me and no one can take this from you. Well, and that's a good word for me, the, the marker, because I think sometimes as disappointment comes, as suffering comes, the frustration that overtakes us can really lead us down a path of saying things like, if God loved me, he wouldn't let this happen. 
-hmm. but it's almost like he gives us those markers, those, what I call them, the Joshua stones, you know, pick up the 12 stones out of the river, stack them so that you remember, I am who I say I am, that I am a God who is faithful, that I am a God who keeps his promises, because we need those markers to cling to when we're really struggling to be able to go back and say, yes, I remember when you did this. Yes. You know, along the way. And that's just... Sometimes what I have to cling to is you've done what you said you were going to do time and time again. And I can trust that even now, even when it doesn't feel like you are who you say you are. Yeah, exactly. And really from my life, after going through lots of subsequent suffering, I still go back to that day in the car. Yeah. I still go back to that marker, that Joshua Stone, Ebenezer, that says, God helped me. God was there that was the most real moment for me. And I go back and I remember it. Yeah. Well, and the reality is that years later, you were, you were diagnosed with post-polio syndrome, which, as you'll probably explain a little bit, is something that continues throughout your life. Right. And your husband left you to care for two young adolescent daughters. And so one blow after another came. What was it with God? Did you at times just shake your fist at him? Were you angry most of the time? Were you joyful? And you kind of talked about that a little bit, but I think it's crucial for people who face suffering to see that God is constant in the storm, even when our feelings are changing. Yes. So all of the above things that you mentioned, you know, angry, shake your fist, joyful. I would say when I was diagnosed with post-polio, which was about six years after Paul died, I was not as angry as I was crushed by the, crushed is maybe too strong, but really shaken by that news because I had been an artist. I had made the best of my life with polio and had done everything I could with my hands, didn't know that I was going downhill. And what post-polio is, is they find out that people who had polio 30 to 40 years after they contracted polio, they start going backwards. And so I was a quadriplegic when I got polio, but after 21 operations and exercising three times a day for most of my young life, I was able to walk and lead a very normal life. And with post-polio, they basically said, you're going backwards. Mm -hmm. So you will one day be a quadriplegic. And that was not something I ever had any clue that was going to happen. But the worst kicker for me was it depends on how much I do, how fast I go downhill. So if I do nothing and sit in my house and eat bonbons and put my feet up, (laughs) post-polio will take a lot longer to take effect and I will be able to keep my strength. And if I do things, then I'm going to lose my strength. So they said it's like money in a bank. And the more I do, the more I withdraw. And so if I had a thousand kilowatts of energy, everything I do takes that energy away. So when you are a mom with two young kids who want your attention all day, and I was an artist, I made jewelry, I cooked, I taught Bible study, I didn't know what to do. Mm -hmm. And so just asking God, show me what I do. And so I had to pare down life to the bare minimum, like no more. I mean, I sold a lot of my jewelry supplies, boxed up my scrapbooking, gave away cooking magazines, just had to change my life for that. And that was really hard. But God was 
in that with me. He just kept assuring me, I'm, I'm going to use this. I'm going to do this. So that was huge. I wouldn't say there was as much anger at God at that point as just show me what, what to do. Yeah. I don't know how this is supposed to look. But I would say six years after that, when my husband at the time, Dave, came home and said he was leaving for someone else, my response was not just show me what to do. It was anger. Mm -hmm. I remember I was in my pastor's house and I just screamed, why does God hate me? I just felt I feel that that way right now, Vanitha, as I'm listening (laughs) to your story, if I'm being honest. Not why does God hate me, but this like, come on, Lord, we need more, you know, not mercy and grace, but just give us a little bit more rest. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I really thought after post-polio, I thought I am done. Like this really is done. And so when that (laughs) happened, I just couldn't believe it. And, you know, I believe God is sovereign. So God could have stopped that. And so I felt so much like, why, why are you doing this? And it was the most personal of everything that had happened, like post-polio and polio and Paul's death, those were sort of removed, but this felt very personal and it was personal. And I was alone raising two adolescent daughters. I was homeschooling them at the time and they both exploded in anger. So for anybody who homeschools their kids, you can't get away from them. I mean, I would lock myself in the bathroom and they would be pounding on the door wanting to yell at me. I mean, it was horrendous. Well, yeah, because they all of a sudden you become the only place that they feel safe to take their frustrations of what has happened to their family unit. Exactly. Out of Exactly. And their dad moved away to another state. He was working in another state and commuting home and our family was getting ready to move to that state. And he ended up just moving there himself. And so he wasn't there for the day-to-day parenting. So there was nobody but me to yell at. And that happened a lot. And I was crumbling. I remember just yelling at God, crying to God, begging God, all of those things. And then I remember one night, sort of a similar time, probably not as dramatic as after Paul died, but just saying, God, help me. What, What are you doing? Like, I can't do this. And I remember reading John 11, the raising of Lazarus, and reading the words, if you believe, you will see the glory of God. Mm -hmm. And I remember crying out to God, I believe, help my unbelief. I want to see your glory. And it was sort of another time when God just said, I'm going to hold you. You cannot see what I'm doing right now. You just can't see it. But I am doing something that you need to trust. And I felt kind of uh, reminded of that time in the car and thought, okay, God, you did bigger things in my own heart and my own life than I could see. And I'm going to trust you. And one of the things we didn't talk about after Paul died, a friend of mine, who's a singer songwriter, Krista Wells, ended up writing a song about Paul. The song is called Held. It was recorded by Natalie Grant in 2006 and got tons of awards Oh my gosh, I love that song. Yeah, and it's about Paul. It starts (gasps) off with, he died at two months, and it starts with, two months is too little, but they let him go. Yes. They had no sudden healing. So it's about Paul. Oh my gosh, I'm sorry, Vanitha. Like, I'm like going, I can sing the whole song right now in my mind. (laughs) So I'm like going off to a whole nother place. That's about your baby boy. Yeah, yeah. And so I see how 
God used that, that crushing time in my life. You know, in the words of that song, this is what it means to be held, how it feels when the sacred is torn from your life and you survive. Yeah. This is what it is to be loved and to know that the promise was when everything fell, you'd be held. And that is the story of my life. You know, the sacred has been torn from my life over and over Over and over. And yet God has held me. And so remembering that song, remembering what God did through that song and through my life really gave me the courage to say, okay, I'm going to put a stake in the ground and trust you in the midst of this and trust that you love me even though I don't feel loved. Mm. Wow. I'm just thinking of so many things now. And so even our listeners are probably like, Amber's not usually this silent. (laughs) Because the reality is when we face suffering, the first thing I think sometimes even believers will say is, God, how can you be good? A good God doesn't let this happen. And I think even a believer has to work through that yeah, and has to come to a place of not just saying that, but actually digging into his word and asking him continuously to show us that that is true, that he is a good God despite suffering. And so when you hear that statement, I know you can't say something that's going to address everyone and make everyone happy, but as someone who has not just face suffering once, twice, three times. It's just been, like you said, a continual part of your story. What is something you would say that, you know, they ask you, someone came up to you and said, God is not good. A good God doesn't let this happen. Hmm. Well, I love this thing that Johnny Erickson Tata says, which is God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Hmm. And so... I think we, if this life were all that there is, then I would probably be asking that question too. How can a good God let this happen? But we don't even know the half of what God has prepared for us. And I think suffering does things in our lives. It draws us closer to God. It changes our character. So there's a lot of good that suffering does in our own lives, but suffering God uses for his glory. And we don't even know all those ways, but I know I've been able to minister to people and talk to people about pain because pain is a part of our fallen world, Christian, non-Christian, everybody deals with pain. And it's a way to talk about the hope of the gospel. And when we even look at Jesus, his healing was so that people would know that he was God, so that people would find true hope and true healing. And I feel like my suffering and not being healed is doing the same thing. It's helping people see the sufficiency of God, Mm. which is really what life is all about. It's not about being comfortable here. This is not our home. It's not. And if it was, then it wouldn't make any sense, but our home is in heaven Mm -hmm. and our character, all of those things, we take that with us, who we are, how we've known God. Those are the only things that are going to last. So suffering kind of burns off all the things that don't last, that we can't take. Mm. And it leaves us with what lasts. Wow. Yeah, that's a really good word. And I always think about something that C.S. Lewis said. If the timeline is from beginning, you know, to end creation to the end of time, we only see these little moments on the timeline. 
but God is above that timeline and it's all right now. Right. And I think that's the thing time sometimes can so impact our emotions and our feelings because it feels like it's never going to end. Yeah. You know, he knows the whole story. Right. And he knows that it's just a very small, small piece Mm -hmm. of the life that we really have. And we get so focused on the really minute things. Mm -hmm. You know, Paul says the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. And I think that's so true. These light and momentary afflictions, even though they seem huge in our life, in the scheme of our real life, which is eternity, they're nothing. They're nothing. Such a good perspective. Well, you were talking earlier about the sovereignty of God and believing like, God, you could have changed this if you wanted Mm -hmm. to. And so you write for Desiring God. And that's a a place where people can frequently find your writings. Um, And I'll make sure that I link that, you know, in the show notes too, to some of your, your favorites that you have on your website. But John Piper said this about you. He said, Vanitha is a beautiful example of glad hearted submission to the sovereignty of God. How did you begin to gladly? I mean, that's a big That's a lot of churchy words, first Uh of all, in one sentence. And so how did you begin to really submit gladly to the sovereignty of God? And what does that even mean? Hmm. That's a great question, Amber. Um, Well, it's funny because I had not even heard of John Piper until after Paul died and had not really heard about the sovereignty of God. And didn't even like that idea. I remember people saying, you know, God you know, God's behind this, the whole idea of predestination. I mean, I just was not a huge fan of any of that. And after Paul died, somebody gave me a tape and it was John Piper talking about the sovereignty of God and suffering. And I remember thinking, I'm not going to like this, but he gave an example of Charles, Charles Spurgeon. He was 57 dying of Bright's disease and gout. And someone said to Spurgeon, how can you stand this knowing that God allowed it? And Spurgeon's response was, allowed it, if I didn't believe that God caused it and measured my suffering to the very drop, then I wouldn't be able to stand it. And that's my paraphrase of Spurgeon's quote, but basically God was behind everything. And at first I thought, that's crazy. But then as John Piper unpacked it, just realizing, do I want suffering that God had nothing to do with that. God is Mm. trying to clean up that God's saying, Oh no, I didn't want that to happen, but I'm going to, I'm going to make this okay somehow versus there is a purpose to this. That's going to blow your mind. Mm. And I thought, I really want, there's a purpose that's going to blow your mind that you are going to one day be thankful for this because I have used it in glorious ways. And he went on to talk about Genesis 50, 20, that Joseph says to his brothers, You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And that changed my view of the sovereignty of God, which is really that God God can do what he wants and that God is good and has purposes for your life. I mean, that's how I would summarize what that means is submitting to the fact that God has purposes for my life Mm -hmm. that I don't know or understand. And that has given me joy in my suffering. To be honest, if I didn't believe that, 
I think I would always think I was living God's plan B, that God was making the best of a bad situation. But if God didn't want Paul to die and he died anyway, then I'm living my second best life. Wow. Yeah, that's really incredible. So that blew my mind. And that has taken me through everything. Like post-polio, this is God's best for me. Like not being able to paint and draw, but now writing, because that's, I use voice activated software. That's what I do because I couldn't do those other things and realizing that's God's best for me. Like Mm -hmm. this is quadriplegia one day is God's best for me. And so I can have joy in that versus, versus thinking, oh my gosh, these were a series of mistakes from lots of doctors and God is going to try to patch it up, but it's meaningless. When I think of it in that manner, I think, is God truly all powerful then if I don't believe that he is sovereign even in suffering? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, you have to start asking like plan B. Well, no, God could change it. And there's just so much theology we could get into there that could take a long time to really unpack. But I think the the fact that God is all powerful right. goes hand in hand with the fact that he is sovereign. Right. And really can one exist without the other. Right. Yeah. Just believing that, that he's all powerful and that he's good. Because I think all world religions, you know, you look at Islam, they all think that God or gods, depending on the religion, can do whatever they want. But they don't feel that God is good and mm-hmm. God is for us. And the fact that we have that, that God loves us, he's good, he's for us, he's all-powerful, he's all-knowing, that's unbelievable. Mm -hmm. You shared one way, you know, that you've seen the glory of God through just the song Held and all the impact that it had. I would say not, maybe not just nationally, but I'm sure it had some impact even globally. What are some other ways that you have seen the glory of God through your suffering? Well, I've seen it through my daughters, just to see them both have a strong faith because of what they went through. They both walked away from God in the midst of my ex-husband leaving, and they both came back, and they both owned their own faith. Uh, Katie went to Senegal in Africa for a year to do missions after she graduated from college. Christy leads a Bible study and is excited about the Lord and I just see that God has brought great good out of that. And even, um, it's kind of crazy. I got a text from my ex-husband this morning, and he just said, thank you for submitting to God for all that God is doing in your life. So even in places that you don't expect it, God uses our pain and God uses our suffering and God uses our responses when it seems like it doesn't matter. Mm. And I think that shows me God's glory. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. In your book, The Scars That Have Shaped Me, you write, Lamenting keeps us engaged with God. When we lament, we invite God into our pain so that we can know his comfort and others can see that our faith is real. Our faith is not a facade we erect to convince ourselves and others that pain doesn't hurt. It is an oak tree that can withstand the storms of doubt and pain in our lives and grow stronger through them. So for somebody listening, and you've shared a little bit about this, but someone who may be in the middle of intense suffering, how would you encourage them to really press into their faith and truly lament? Because that is something that I'm not sure our culture 
really knows or understands how to do is lament. Yeah. Well, I would say be honest with God. Just tell him what you really feel. Mm -hmm. Don't say what you think you should, because I think we feel like we need to come dressed up to God that we say the right things. And if you really read the Psalms, read Psalm 88. It is dark because Heman, the Ezraite, is in massive pain. And yet the Bible says, and I think in Kings, that he was a godly, wise man. And so he wasn't just some discontented person. He loved God, but there'd been tremendous suffering. And those words are hard. You look at Job, you look at Jeremiah, look at the book of Lamentations, people pour out their hearts to God. Mm -hmm. And I find the more real we are with God, the more real he is with us and the more real he is to us. Whereas if we bring our plastic selves to God, we get a plastic version of God in response because we're not being real. We don't even, it's not that God is plastic, but we're not even reaching God because we're not being honest. So I have found really the times when I have grown and met God and found joy have been when I am willing to put it all out there with God and say how I feel, ask him to help me read the Psalms and just say, these are my words to you, God. Whereas I think, you know, even when we go to church, I think very few churches sing lament. Mm -hmm. We sing songs of praise, which are important, but there is this sense that when we go to church, people say, it's all good. I'm better than I deserve. I'm blessed. And those are all true. Yes. But they prevent us from actually being real with Mm -hmm. others and then with ourselves because we think good Christians don't do that. Mm. Well, and that lamenting or stripping yourself down to what you, you know, would describe as like the raw, real self does open yourself up to finally be able to see where you can give thanks, I feel like. Yes. Well, it's funny because in the Bible, everyone except for Psalm 88, every Psalm of Lament ends with praise. And I found that from my journaling, like I would start off with God, what, what are you doing? Why is this happening? And I was shocked how I always ended with, but God Mm. is good. God has done this. And there's this simple format, even for a lament that I would often start with is how long, oh Lord, how long are you going to hide your face from me? Mm. But ultimately turn back to, but you, oh God, there are so many truths about you. He points our eyes back to him. I, Like you said, that plastic version of ourselves, when we're just real and honest, he points us back to himself in ways that I think we cannot break through to unless we are real and honest. Right, right. Yeah, it's incredible. Well, tell our listeners who may be interested in some of your writing um, and maybe just some of your wisdom where they can find you on the internet. Yeah. Well, I have a website, which is danceintherain.com. And it's from that saying, life is not about waiting for the storm to pass, but learning to dance in the rain. Um, And I say that because a lot of people say, I looked for you in dancing in the rain. And it's not dancing, it's dance in the rain. And so I write there. And yeah, I write for Desiring God as well. I write for them almost every month. So if you go to Desiring God, you can find my work there as well. 
Yeah. And then your book is available and anywhere you can find books. And then um, you will have a new one coming out. And probably, I know you don't have an exact date yet, but sometime in 2021, correct? Yes. So probably about a year from now. Yeah. So exciting. Well, we like to end our show with a couple of questions, but um, because of our time, I'm just going to ask you this question. If you could sit down with your great grandchildren and offer them some wisdom, what is something you would like to share with them? I think I would say to them that I have learned through my life that everything that happens to me can draw me closer to Jesus and make me more like him. Mm. And that is the suffering as well as the good things. Everything can draw me closer to Jesus. Mm. And just having that mindset, and when I do, it changes me. It keeps me from being bitter. It helps me focus on the things that are important because God can use everything. Mm. Well, Vanitha, thank you so much for sitting down with me today. It has been an absolute pleasure. Oh, I have so enjoyed this, Amber. I'm, I'm looking forward to our coffee. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Resources, links, and quotes from today's conversation can be found at graceenoughpodcast.com under the show notes tab. If you are enjoying the show, I would like to ask you a few favors. Number one, make sure you are subscribed to the podcast. You can head over to Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and iHeartRadio. Clicking that subscribe button helps to make sure you never miss a new episode of the podcast. Number two, if you enjoy the show, would you take a moment to leave a review on iTunes? Those reviews help me to know how the show is impacting you. And number three, the best way to grow is for people like you to share it with your friends. Will you share your favorite Grace Enough podcast episode via text, email, or social media? Again, I'm so grateful for each one of you who listen week in and week out. Thank you for listening to the Grace Enough podcast. Tune in next time.